you're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. Just worked out what that song is. Oh yeah, who sang it? OMC. OMC. There you go. What does OMC stand for? Oh my God. God. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I'm here with two guys who really don't give a fuck anymore. (laughs) With an average listening age language level of 12 years and under. I'm down with that. How are you guys this week? Great. David, David do you want to go first? Uh, yes, and uh, you, you didn't introduce yourself, did Doesn't you say? Matter. We're not doing that anymore, are we? <laughs> oh, but what about new listeners? Fuck them. <laughs> no, don't. No, no, no. no, no. I come, take back. Back. I take come back. So to my <laughs> left is Mr. Mike Fraser, our host. <laughs> One of the hosts. <laughs> Throwing our weight behind Bernie Sanders with our democratic socialist approach to this podcast yep, now. and it seems to be backfiring dramatically, so maybe we should get more Trump listeners. <laughs> Much like his campaign. <laughs> uh, you don't have any holes in your socks today, Chris. I, I know. I kept these ones special They're for a little you. bit thin at the toe, but uh, that's fine. So am I. A light dernier. I have thin toes. What? <laughs> yeah, thin, thin socks for thin toes. Thin toes. They're good for reaching into places that my fingers can't. Because I'm standing uh-huh. up. Yep. Stuff's down in the ground and I need to get yeah. it out of a hole. Yeah, when you drop a pickle between the fridge and the cooker. Uh huh. But you're texting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Incredibly specific. <laughs> on, on my left, I'm joined I really by. Like pickles. On my left, I'm joined by Chris Kusaki, has very thin toes, apparently. You don't want a rusty pickle. Not a rusty. A, a, rusty, a, a rusty pickle. A dusty pickle. You don't want a dusty pickle. <laughs> rusty pickle. A rusty pickle. DJ if I've ever heard the one. <laughs> yeah, sounds like a. Maybe a deep south car salesman. <laughs> rusty pickle. I'll find out when I go there in a couple of weeks. Yes. You're going to be on holiday soon, so we need to rack up the episodes before you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Either that or me and David are going to have to pull it out of the fire once more because Mark was, inverted commas, sick. <laughs> that was really sick, guys. Um, <laughs> now, you're going to the home of jazz music and the home of blues music. Is and that Martin Luther King. And the home of, so, you know. You're yeah. going to Mississippi. Yeah, I've got Mississippi, yeah. You know, they still have a Confederate cross on their flag. Do they? Mm-hmm. I know that. Yeah, you should see the state flags, man. Some of them are pretty interesting. Um, the one for, ooh, is it Virginia? It looks like two bears shagging a badge. Mm-hmm. This is why you dress like a geography teacher, isn't it? <laughs> Hawaii has uh, the Union Jack in it. Oh, that would mm-hmm. make sense, yeah. Because yeah, it was... Because of the Pacific. Before it was America, it was just an island that Britain had shagged. (laughs) (laughs) Um, David, how the fuck do you manage to wear shorts and t-shirt in this country in this weather? Well, I mean, it's not cold. What temperature is it? I've taken a jacket off. Hang on. I had a sports jacket on 
and well, then shorts. Thirteen degrees outside. Thirteen degrees for listeners around the world. I'm not walking around in my t-shirt, but S- see right now, it's fine to have your knees out. Our listeners in Sri Lanka just fainted hearing that you're walking around in shorts and t-shirt in thirteen degrees. I've got a jacket. All right. Knees, all right, fuck's sake. You know, I'm wearing, I'm not. <laughs> I need to boast. I'm, I'm no some mad lad, but I do have my knees out in anything above 10 degrees. My shins don't give off much heat. It all comes out your head. How was your week? Uh, it's been lovely. I went to Inverness at the weekend. I didn't go out to the pub, so I didn't hear Lewis Capaldi or... or that hotel thing. Yeah, but um, I was in Inverness and Noel Gallagher was playing in the Bucked Park. So, uh, the amount of absolute twats in Inverness <laughs> was increased dramatically. It was incredible to see the amount of Stone Island and uh, uh, Fred Perry on the go. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wearing my Fred Perry. Shirt, I'm not a Proud Boy today. <laughs> Lucky. Uh, Gavin, Gavin McInnes is out of the Proud Boys now. Oh. What a shame. He released a public statement about it. <laughs> I've made a huge mistake. Kind of feeling sorry for himself though and basically sorry not sorry. It was actually to do with them going to court in New York because they're getting targeted as a hate group now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seems accurate And to he was fair. like, oh if I step away maybe you guys can keep on criticising Jews. Group. <laughs> 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 I'm not quite jail for it. Um, I had uh, an interesting week. I went to see a band yesterday whose name I keep forgetting. What are they called? Uh, sun Waves Sun Waves I think so S-Z-U-N uh, Oh yeah Sun yeah. Waves Yeah which I found out About at very short notice And it was very very mm-hmm. good Very very good Really oh. trippy Kind of angelicy But live um, I really enjoyed that And I really didn't enjoy Spoiler alert The first 30 minutes That I've seen Of the third episode Of the new series Of Black Mirror First one was good Second um, one I yeah. thought Was amazing uh, The third one this Miley Cyrus episode with the oh yeah the music one with the Nine Inch Nails cover slash rewritten thing yeah man not enjoying it doing my boxing it's like the one thing you want about Black Mirror is that it's insightful and kind of peeks behind the curtain and exposes sort of disingenuity as it really does in the second episode no I'll not say because you've not seen it I've not seen it no yeah the, the second one I thought was fantastic but without is that the it, one with uh, the hot priest in it from Fleabag Andrew Scott yep yeah yeah, and he is off the hook amazing in that episode. He's a fucking great actor. Wow. Hot Priest is definitely a yeah. new band from Glasgow, isn't it? Should be. <laughs> um, he owns that one. He's he's really, really good. Uh, but the third one has this weird thing where it kind of continues that frustrating mythologizing around pop stars where, no spoilers past the f- 10 minute mark here, but like where Miley Cyrus is playing this character who's a pop star who feels trapped in the cycle of being a pop star and really just wants to write kind of piano ballads and really she, but she's got to keep churning out these pop hits and her, mm. her management and stuff are getting annoyed has she not produced a new single yet I can't believe it no she just keeps writing these piano songs none of these fucking people write these fucking singles anyway mm. we've established that it's really frustrating for Black Mirror which seeks to be like a, a thing that strips away the, progressive the, commentary yeah it strips away the bullshit on, on issues uh, to be almost reinforcing a misconception that is even if it's not tech-based, it's equally destructive, in my opinion, in a lot of circles. It's really frustrating. It was really disappointing to see it. And I don't believe for a minute that Charlie Brooker actually thinks that Miley Cyrus writes, or any of them write their music. Yeah, it's just a romantic trope. Yeah, it's something he's kind of bought into. Maybe it's a sign that he's getting a little bit too ingratiated with the The in crowd. Did he write that one? I don't think he wrote every episode this season, did he? I think he only wrote the first one. Interesting. 
Well, there you are. Because a lot of the a lot of the, the past two seasons weren't only, were written only, I think, only a couple of episodes were written by him. Man, the, the past season felt like it was written for the American market. It was so soft. Like everything was rounded off and gentle. All that kind of nasty. Mm. Oh my god, I've got a horrible empty feeling. It was gone. Like that used to make Black Mirror. Black Mirror, I think. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's my thoughts on that. Um, we are going to do something that's absolutely nothing to do with pop music whatsoever today. Uh, we are going to cover the album Carboniferous by the Italian band Zoo. Said you. Z- Said yourself. Z- uh, possibly a- the most Chris Cusack band we've done so far. Absolutely maximum Cusack. Really? Yeah. I'll just take, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. It's uh. just like <laughs> what you like. It's you, yeah. This is you in a band. This is you in band form. Yeah. I, I know. I'll take that as well. Absolutely. Um, kind of angular, hard to love. <laughs> what I look for in a band is that by the Repetitive. third track, it yeah, sounds like boring after a while. angry geese. <laughs> angry <going>. geese. <laughs> you sound like that sometimes. I do, I do. I fart like that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Zoo are from Ostia, which is a town very close to Rome, next to the sea. They formed in 1997. Uh, they have a huge back catalogue uh, of completely different sounding material. This particular one comes from 2009, and ooh, with no disrespect to the band, I think they've gotten better, uh, but I do think it's the high point of their career thus far. It was released on Epicac, which is obviously Mike Patton's label. The first release on Epicac, wasn't it? Zoos. Yeah, it was the first. Yeah, it was. A, I think he just got signed to it. I think so. Yeah, uh, the band primarily, and for the purposes of this, is made up of Luca Mai, um, Luca T Mai, um, Massimo Pupillo, and Jacopo Battaglia. Uh, Jacopo Battaglia is the original drummer who then rejoined them very recently when they started touring this album for its anniversary. He is the best drummer, in my opinion, in Zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had other people in. Um, they had Gabe Serbian, who's a drummer in The Locust and Cattle Decapitation. <laughs> Gabe's a fantastic drummer. Really, really good. And I've seen them with Gabe. And they recorded an album called Cortar Todo uh, with Gabe, and it's great. But it's much more metallic. He's definitely a little bit more down-the-line metal drummer, which is weird when you think about The Locust, but you can hear that on that record. It's just slightly straighter, isn't it? It's slightly... Yeah. He's exceptionally chillier. good. Like, mm. within, the conf- within the confines of a bar, he can do stuff that many other drummers, m- most other drummers can't. But his exploration out with the bar structure is maybe less uh, of a feature of his game, which is what Jacopo does so well, because they started as very much a jazz drummer and then got heavier and heavier and heavier. And so his approach to it, he's really grown with the band as well. And I think when they're with him, it's something truly astonishing. They had another guy called Thomas Yarmir, who uh, who I think did some time with Motorcycle. And Thomas was good. Um, I saw them with him as well. Uh, But... It's all about Battaglia 
uh, for me. Uh, by the way, Gabe Serbian's also in a band called Headwind City. Have you heard of those guys? I've heard of the name. I've never actually heard of them. Uh, it's two guys for the Blood Brothers, uh, two members of the Locust, and is it Nick Zinner or Zimmer? Zinner. From, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, It seems like a pretty cool band. I think uh, the Blood Brothers, uh, I say Cody, Volato, Volato isn't it? And his, his brother, pretty sure it is, the singers. I don't really know a lot about the Blood Brothers other than that the guy's voice absolutely ruined. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I couldn't. Basically, yeah. Like, I just couldn't. <laughs> I, like, I, I remember buying it and then taking it back. I was like, back when you did that. Did you take records back? Absolutely. I bought it, but I just I sort of... Never looked at Do you remember again. when FOP had a sticker and everything going suck it and see? And it meant that the album that you wanted, you didn't buy that first. What you did was you bought the album you didn't want. Yeah. And then you go and change it. Burned it, <laughs> took it back and yeah. changed it for the one that you did actually want all along. Um, sorry, FOP, but fuck you. you got I think I ever returned an album, actually. Oh, well. Never. There's, there's probably a few I would have, but I just, I, I'm the sort of person that doesn't complain at a restaurant. I just eat what no I'm standards. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> if it's horrible, I, I'm. No, I'm not no standards. I'm just too embarrassed to, you know, deal with the uh, confrontation. So I think I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but I once took back an extremely limited edition Jesus Lizard vinyl mm-hmm. uh, that turned out was quite valuable as a collector's item. But I bought it and then could not get into it because I just wasn't ready for Jesus Lizard. Took it back a year later. I thought they were the best thing I'd ever heard, and it and was this thing was ten gone. times the price. Yeah. Do you still regret that to this day? Of course I do. <laughs> End of. I would be living like a king right now. I'd have sold that on eBay for... £48. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Free postage. Um, yeah, so one thing this album brings up is jazz rock, uh, which is not something we've really covered in any way. I mean, jazz rock, but I mean, there's a lot more to this album than just oh, yeah, yeah. jazz and rock. Well, uh, and j- to this band. Jazz rock, noise jazz, avant-garde jazz, metal... Noise rock, uh, ambient, experimental, art rock. I mean, there's so many different... Yeah, they, this band cover a lot of genre. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think jazz rock, kind of, when you when you just look it up, brings up everything from, like, Steely Dan through into Frank Zappa. But then it also kind of... More kind of alternative and contemporary stuff like US Maple, John Zorn, uh, bands like Sweep the Leg Johnny, who I think come up when you discuss Zoo quite a lot. people that kind of come up as like forefathers are guys like Albert Eiler, Don Cherry, Peter Brotsman. I, I needed a little bit of guidance in this. I spoke to Graham Costello of Strata uh, to ask him for a wee bit of advice. Um, he was saying... Uh, there's a lot of references to guys like I mean, and there's references within Zoo's reviews as well to people like Duke Ellington um, also uh, Graham was pointing out that uh, John Coltrane and his drummer Elvin Jones were a, a huge inspiration when it came to drum and sax and drum and brass definitely hear that. pairings yeah like you said they were real pioneers in that way and a lot of the people now doing it in much heavier ways 
were turned on to the, the possibilities by those guys way back. Uh, my old guitar teacher, who's probably listening now, this podcast, um, he was the one that got me turned on to John Coltrane with Love Supreme, and I hated it. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard, yeah. Uh, but I appreciated what it could do. I appreciated like the musicality of it, the playing, but for me, yeah, it wasn't really my Yeah, jam. see, even, even with Zoo, uh, I'm the first to admit with Zoo that the vast majority of their back catalogue is, is too much for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some uh, moments of Zoo that are absolutely, I mean, sensational and live. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot more sense to me. But listening to some of their earlier albums, especially albums like Igneo, as good as they are, I, I get exhausted very easily. And it's I've never been somebody that's really into style. Like, a, yeah, it, well, I mean, uh, dressing I, like I a geography know. teacher, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but. It's style over content thing. I like it when they rein it in and when they have more structured things like they do in this and some of the later stuff. Um, the freeform stuff is very impressive, but uh, much in the same way as some math rock leaves me really, really cold. Uh, the, the the cerebral quality of it uh, overrides the kind of heart quality of it. I, I don't know. It doesn't really work for me. So, yeah, again, into jazz was very difficult. I kind of got into it through the back door of like heavier stuff that then worked backwards, such as... Uh, mm-hmm. Another name that came up when I was looking into this early on was, I'm not entirely sure about the pronunciation, but Borbito Magus, Borbito Magus, they're uh, kind of like late 70s, early 80s band, in 1979, uh, they brought out an album called Barbed Wire Maggots, no, in fact it would be 1983 they brought that out. But they're from the USA and they were like a really harsh experimental noise jazz. They were pioneers, really. Um, kind of akin to Zoo's more avant garde records. Uh, there's a huge scene for this sort of stuff in Japan. I think Zoo themselves have collaborated with a lot of Japanese musicians. Yeah, I was about to say, like, a lot of stuff happened from the late 70s onwards and all the way through to today in Japan that's been really progressive. Fucking love jazz. They're there. fucking mad for that shit. Yeah, they really are. And some of the most bizarre experimental forties come from Japan. And yeah. yeah, and they've teamed up with Zoo at various stages. Uh, I think Zoo have got records as well that are specifically Asia only releases. But there's there's other there's there's contemporaries over here. There's a band called The Thing from Sweden, um, that are probably about the closest that you'll get to Zoo at the kind of Carboniferous Goodnight Civilization kind of eras. <laughs> Really, really good again. Bass, drum, saxophone, uh, noise rock based. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Zoo do later in their career that appeals to me so much is when they join those early, jazzier, more avant garde forays with their clear love of noise rock. So there's a lot of names that start to crop up as comparisons when you hear the tones they go for, the arrangements, the heaviness, and even just some of the bands they ended up touring with and collaborating with. 
Um, there's a really legendary Italian noise rock band called Uzeda that you should check out if you've not. And I know that the guys in the band are quite influenced by them. And most people in Italy that are playing in a noise rock and avant-garde rock are, are into Uzeda, I think. Sweep the Leg Johnny, as I mentioned, uh, two albums that are definitely worth checking out, Stoccazzo and uh, Going Down Swinging. Uh, saxophone, guitar, bass, drums, much more post-hardcore-y. Mm-hmm. Really, really good band. Uh, and you've got bands like uh, Boredoms, uh, Cherubs, with their absolutely ferocious bass one, and Cherubs just recently started playing some shows again. <laughs> Melt Banana, Japanese band who really, really far out there. Uh, Coming back in October. Yep, that's right. Still doing the rounds. Uh, the biggest pedal board you'll ever see. Yeah, like, ridiculous. Yeah. I have to like, get a taxi from one end to the other. <laughs> uh, Swans at points have some of that kind of obstinate, ugly darkness that Zoo touch on in this record. Uh, Melvin's, obviously, uh, King Buzzle features in this, and Melvin's are a big influence on Zoo. As well as being kind of peers of them now, I think. Mm. Really, they're quite close yeah, they, they toured as well. Um, they were part of I think Zoo supported them on that Phantomus Melvin's collab, like it, the Melvin's big band thing. I think they joined. Did they actually join the band? I think they were part of it, yeah, yeah. Uh, you've also got people, uh, in case you, you're not aware of them, people like Glenn Branca, uh, who actually died May last year, I think. really experimental guitarist from from the United States, like a, a real pioneer of noise and kind of left field stuff that, you know, certainly bands like Sonic Youth probably wouldn't exist without Glenn Branca. And I know Zoo have taken bits and bobs from him and from the people that were influenced by him. It, they're, they're two quite difficult genres to get into noise rock and jazz rock or jazz. And this band merged them together. But at its height, uh, they refine it and distill it and they kind of more and more ruthlessly preen all the unnecessary yeah. stuff off. And but what's interesting is, I think, and in particularly on this record, is that they take those two genres and then when they mix them, they somehow come out with a much doomier metal sound. And, you know, they've obviously always had a sort of metal doomy influence, but there's, like, bits, you know, throughout their catalogue, particularly here where, you know, it could be, like, sort of chaos sort of stuff or yeah. sleep and things like that. You know, they are aware of the chug. It, it, <laughs> is, a, it is fascinating how they've gone from being very, very technically gifted, but have just got heavier and heavier and heavier as the... Uh, yeah, a lot of bands do the opposite. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, when I first got into Zoo, it was from Carboniferous, so it was the first one I heard. Mm-hmm. And then I assumed that working backwards, I would find something less and less and less refined, more noise rocky, more caustic, cheaper recordings and stuff. But, you know, the 
worked with Albini before that and things like that. Yeah. It was like it, it wasn't like that at all. It was just quite different. Romeo, the 1999 one was their first record two years after they'd formed and that was much more sort of typical what you might think of as jazz art rock. Really clever and impressive and it had a guy called Roy Patchy playing trumpet at that time. Um, they had a whole bunch of like weird collaborations they kept collaborating with this guy called Shadborn a guitarist uh, they did Zoo Side of the Shadborn with him which is really avant-garde really unstructured uh, kind of meanders very esoteric I, I don't enjoy that sort of stuff personally They did one called Motor Hellington with him as well and Patchy on trumpet again, uh, which is really just kind of weird covers. There's like covers of Iron Man, Sex Machine. All with like twists on the names again it's really whimsical it's fine if you're a completist but I don't think at those at this stage of their career maybe I'm wrong I wasn't seeing them live but it's hard to imagine being able to predict what they were going to go on and achieve just from the the evidence those early records they're fine they're good records they're fine Mm -hmm. but they're really out there and it seems like this is a band that's going to get weirder and weirder and less listenable then in 2002 they did Igneo and Igneo is one that a a real fan favourite um, it was produced by Steve Albini, like I said. Uh, it's only their second, inverted commas, normal album and was like this really big landmark jazz rock moment with crossover appeal. It's also got the song Solar Anus on oh. it. Anus is a standout track. Like they still just do one it. of the best uh, track names of all time as well. It, it is indeed. Still. That's a great song. Uh, it's also got track five, and that one's called Monte Zoo, which is really good. It's jazzy, it's clever, but it's a bit more aggressive, and it, it's the definitive lineup of the band as well. The year after that, they did a live album, Live in Helsinki, which is a good live album, um, but is you know much the same material. Two thousand and four, did Radiale. Excuse my Italian. She was like a collaboration with someone called uh, Spaceways Inc., which I think is actually just one person, a guy called Ken Vandermark. It was uh, produced by Bob Weston. Was it? Yeah. Oh, that would make sense. Good record, but very jazzy. Yeah, super jazzy. Like, like again, very esoteric. The first half of it, I think Zoo are sort of taking the lead, and then the second half of it, Vandermark's taking the lead. I think that's, I, I got the impression that's how it's structured. I might be wrong, but that's just what I took from it. 
it's a bit less chaotic than some of the previous experimental stuff. I think the Village Voice in the States had marked it a grey day and put it in their top 10 jazz records 2004. 2005, a record that came up a lot amongst friends when they found out I was doing the Azu record was The Way of the Animal Powers. It's another landmark record for them. Um, still very avant-garde. Again, a bit nastier. Uh, talking of good track names, Tom Araya is our Elvis. Yeah. Track one. <laughs> um, this really disconcerting machine-like pattern, really. It's really, really odd music. Really pushing the envelope. The third track in that as well, um, shape-shifting, uh, very jazzy, very weird. Uh, it has cello on it by somebody called Fred Lomberg Home. It's really effective. The cello is super overdriven and it shows them getting slightly meaner, getting the tones getting nastier, the band getting a bit more sinister, a bit more pessimistic, a bit nihilistic. Um, and then 2006, How to Raise an Ox. How to Raise an Ox, I'd actually been told, was really, really impenetrable. And so I was a little bit wary because I'd never actually heard it. And I actually think it's really underrated. There's a big rock shift in it. It wasn't nearly as uh, avant-garde as I thought it was going to be. A guy called Matt uh, Gustafsson on second saxophone on it works really well. And I think it's really worth checking out if you've never heard that album. It's a a really good record. I Mm -hmm. I found it really quite listenable. They also, that year, well, I think it came out 2005 actually, they did a split record with Dalek. Dalek, yeah, that's right. Um, who are kind of like one of the original experimental hip-hop acts. I I don't think Death Grips would exist without Dalek. You know, Dalek is a prime candidate for this show. Yeah, well. absolutely. They've yeah. got some really interesting records. They've been around since like late nineties. Yeah, big Patton Epicat collaborators as well. Yeah, but yeah. they've you know they they cite sort of Godflesh and stuff like that as influences. They're yeah, they fucking love really me like Godflesh. harsh noise. Love me about Godflesh. Yeah, I know. Oh yeah, He's some lad. Um, and they did a series of uh, EPs actually around about the time Dalek two thousand five, Sanawachi something or other compilation two thousand and six, which I think was Japan only. It's one of those ones. I don't know if it's like live recorded or reworked. I couldn't actually get a listen to it. Uh, they did one in 2006 with Iceburn. Uh, they did one in 2007 called Identification with the Enemy with uh, Nobukatsu Takamura. I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the song. Is it Alone with the Alone? Is this really great droney doing? Yeah, that's the first track. Yeah, that's that's a really fucking brilliant tune on that record. Uh, and I think there's one in 2008 with Demo Suzuki and uh, Zabia. 
but I, d- I don't know too much about their compl- the, their uh, collaborative EPs. They are quite hard to find sometimes, and I know it's the age of the internet, but you know, it takes a lot of concentration to track down fourteen albums plus all the EPs. Uh, they did the two. They did Carboniferous in two thousand and nine, and then Carboniferous was followed by this hiatus, where um, Massimo. I'd, no, I'd actually been in correspondence with you at this time because we were involved in a different project, putting together a compilation for charity, mm-hmm. and we really wanted Zoo to be involved in it, and they they were. And given that Massimo was in the Himalayas when I was communicating with him, it was exceptionally nice of them to be so obliging. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were quite quick to respond and stuff as well. But he, he kind of went off the grid for five, four or five years uh, to do a bit of like soul searching, does, did a lot of meditation, did a lot of philosophical studying, um, and came back, I think, quite a kind of cleansed character. He uh, came back with a lot of kind of interesting new artistic angles. Uh, for their stuff um, The first thing they did after the, uh, that hiatus Was Goodnight Civilization EP in 2014 Which is really fucking good Really heavy Really short It's only one side of a 12 inch The other side's just etched um, and Gabe Serbian's playing on that one, and it works really, really well. 2014, they did The Left Hand Path uh, with a guy called Eugene Robinson from Oxbow. Have you listened to that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, it's fucking miserable. It's awful. Um, it's. I never really got into Oxbow either. I, I just, I, I've seen Oxbow live, and other than the fact that Eugene constantly gets down in his pants at the earliest opportunity, yeah. Oxbow are pretty good. I like them, but Eugene is a very very out there mm-hmm. and there's a track on that record where he's just sobbing and wailing at one yeah. point it was one of those moments you're walking down the road and you're trying to stay in the mental space that lets you enjoy an album like that. Yeah. And then you just are like, I'm fucking listening to a guy sobbing and howling <laughs> as I'm walking down a sunny street in the afternoon. It's like, I don't, yeah. I don't need this shit. And it's, there is music in there to be picked apart, but I found the whole thing really such hard work that I couldn't, I couldn't justify the, the enjoyment to effort ratio. Uh, and then just to kind of round off their back catalogue in 2015, they did Cortar Todo, which is a fucking great record, much more metallic, Big drift from their earlier jazz and experimentation stuff. Loads of Melvinsy bits in it, and there's a bass tone in there that makes unseen sound like they're relaxed. Uh, the Cortar Todo track itself's great. Burial is a bit neurosis y. Uh, there's a great song in it called Vanta Black Vomitorium. Yeah, that's uh, good. Yeah, which is one of the most evil tunes, and the tense track in it, Panto Crater, is this like giant yawning doomy drone thing like Sun Dave's wearing a Sun shirt here uh, that just kind of disintegrates at the end into almost like bit crushed noise and then the kind of eerie whirring sound it's really out there 
uh, but it's an album that kind of sees its mood through from start to finish. I was really impressed with it, even though the cover fucking sucks. It's sonically very interesting. Yeah. It's um, the, yeah, I, it's maybe the one I like the production on most. Yeah, this, the production on it's great. It <coughs> is really good. Kind of goes all over the place. Uh, 20, 2017, they did a thing called Jator. J-H-A-T-O-R. really experimental it's like two tracks clocking in about 20 minutes each very ambient droney deconstructed it's got guest vocals from jessica moss of silvermount zion on it um it's really nice in places but as you can imagine from the sounds of it it's very fucking weird mm-hmm. not nearly as weird as mirror emperor by zoo 93 <laughs> did either of the guys look it up I I found it, but I didn't actually get to listen to it. It was on YouTube okay. somewhere. So 2018 or 2019, I can't remember. 2018. Zoo, right, so Zoo 93, Mirror Emperor album is fucking barmy. Hidden trident His wings Spooling into Pluto Shrieking pink it is absolutely barmy. Like it's, I think Massimo takes a lot of the lead in it, and Lucas, I'm not really sure. I think he does the electronics on it instead of sax. Uh, and there's a guy called David Tibbet or Tibet doing vocals over it that are just fucking mental. Like it is really properly bizarre. I'm obviously going to put a sample in, but uh, yeah, no offense, guys, but I, <laughs> what are you up to? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> There's a real danger that we end up taking the cask off for granted. We get too used to one of us coming in and going, Hi there, sorry to interrupt your podcast. So this is going to be a wee bit different. We need money. We just had to bang the headphone amp off the table for about five minutes to make it work. Just go on the goddamn page. It's unsungpod.net forward slash donate and just add some fucking money to our bank account for fuck's sake. Thank you to everybody who has uh, set up regular donations over the past week. You guys rock. Peace! So I guess at this point, like, I'm curious, cause, uh, Mark, you hadn't really listened to Zoo, had you? No, I had not. So I, there's a lot of stuff there, mm-hmm. and I know we're focusing on Carboniferous, but of the rest of the back catalogue, what did you think? Uh, I didn't like most of it, to be honest. Um, Carboniferous was like, oh, I can get into this, and then I listened to everything else, I was like, I can't get into this. <laughs> How did you feel about uh, Cortartodo? Cortartodo was good. I liked the uh, Igneo was good, but it was a wee bit too on the jazz side for me, uh-huh. and I think that's probably one of the reasons why I don't like math rock so much either, is because I find jazz quite... I don't know Annoying <laughs> Yeah uh, no, Mark, It can be see, see It can feel. be See uh, what I you think, feel Yeah I mean it's, it's It's very much like the I don't know It's like 
like reading the Philip Roth book or something. And it's like you know, you know the guy can write, but he's just he's just causing a mess. <laughs> he's just making a fucking mess, you know. Like, um, but uh, I listened to that way of Animal Powers. Then wasn't really into that. Um, listened to the Left Hand That's, Path. That was know, garbage. Animal Powers is sort of a, a bit of a kindred spirit with Igno. I think it's like similar vibe, mm. which is yeah, it's a lot jazzier. These guys can clearly play. They're obviously really talented players and composers. But it's just, it just wasn't really my jam. And I wanted it to be my jam after being really, really surprised by Carboniferous. Mm-hmm. And it just, just didn't go the way I wanted it to go. I mean, it is stunning for me how much Carboniferous protrudes mm-hmm. as like a perfect coming together of all the ingredients. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it does have some very avant-garde stuff in it. Like yeah, for me, um, I think the band itself are like a sweet spot between avant-garde jazz noise rock math rock and doom and like they just hit that perfectly they've got that groove sort of they keep the groove going and don't really wander off into wank too much in terms of carboniferous mm-hmm. um they do that and like they're proper heavy doom at points um sort of interesting like moogie prog stuff the interesting sort of dynamics of math um but with a much sort of looser and more interesting vibe yeah, I think like Carboniferous is the sweet spot of this band, who are the sweet spot of all those genres coming together. Yeah, yeah. It, no, I would. I think it's a standout uh, for for people that dabble in and around those areas, and mm. I think it did draw people in as well. I know a lot of Neurosis fans got into Zoo, and a lot of Melvins fans got into Zoo, but that's maybe as far as they'll stray mm. into that field. Yeah, and then likewise the other way you have people coming from the jazz field that will find stuff like Melvin's and that too stodgy and conventional. Yeah, and you know even Meshuggah just too cheesy metal and Zoo for them are just this just this meeting point where all these folks from different walks of life can kind of agree. Yeah, no, this is actually still pretty. It's interesting. We'll maybe talk about the progression of the record because like the record does progress. Like I think you know it gets heavier. There, you know, it starts off. It's cleverly structured record. Yeah, I think, yeah. Um, it tells a wee story, but when it kicks off, it reminds me of the French math rock bands like Marvin. Mm-hmm. You know, of our theme tune and Electric Electric, mm-hmm. um, and it's clever and interesting like that. And then you know, it slowly gets noisier and it gets heavier as well. And then you've got the tones coming in that are obviously like pure lightning bolt. It's like it's funny you say that. Actually, I do think there's definitely some truth for for folks that aren't familiar with it. The European underground scene has a lot of very, very interesting ideas that people are trying to sort of mould into more digestible forms. And I think mm-hmm. like bands like the band Marvin that do our soundtrack and the bands that David's mentioned already, there's a, there's a real movement there and it's really fucking artistically rewarding, albeit can sometimes be still quite hard work. Mm-hmm. And Zoo came from that European scene and are very emblematic of its attempts to kind of smash ideas together and then get them to you in a way that's still enjoyable and they sometimes try harder than others and I think yeah. uh, Carboniferous is an example of them at their most disciplined and their most focused in, in, in that way but it is it, you're right they do have parallel uh, they, they do have uh, similarities with a lot of that European scene and they probably feel and fit completely in with that despite their success and they're also oh, they're also a band that are certainly on this record based about around being a live band like this record yeah. is one that you want to be there man this band are fucking good live rocking out they're like, heavy live proper groove and like this record a 
a lot of jazz and a lot of stuff in their other records will tease and kind of annoy the audience because you're like, I want the groove to kick in, but they're fucking adding too many notes in. Whereas this, they will let you dance. Yeah. You know, sometimes that four to the floor happens or, you know, maybe yeah. a fucking eight to the floor, or, <laughs> you know, whatever. But I mean, they, you, you picked out Solar Anus and not, not just because yeah, of the yeah, name, yeah. but that live, the production on the record of Solar Anus doesn't really... It doesn't really punch you in the face, but live that mm. tune is superb. A really, really strong song. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense live because it's written by a live band. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and they're they're yeah they're a slightly different proposition live. I know some people love Zoo live and don't spend a lot of time listening to them on record. I can appreciate that. I can understand that. Yeah, um, but for me, there are certainly a few records that are really rewarding, even in you know the kind of car headphones situation. Mm-hmm. And Carboniferous is definitely one of them. So I guess I talk about the record a wee bit, innit? This is an album, by the way, that fucking shifted a lot of effects pedals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a record where they're like, how can I make this bass guitar sound like a mandolin being played down the telephone inside a microwave? I mean, it's like inspired because they'll, they'll like split channels and they, as a result, they'll get these enormous tones, even though there's only three people playing most of the time. So I'd, I suspect that a fair proportion of Zoo's crowd spends its time at the front of the stage taking photos of the pedal boards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it works. It really works. Um, David mentioned the first track, Ostia, and I do think there's a really lightning bolt feel to Ostia. It's a really quick start to the record, like really urgent. Um, I love as well, I don't know if you noticed in the background, there's a tom that's been used, but they've detuned the skin so much that it just sounds like someone like slapping a wet bag. Yeah. But it's fucking such a weird idea that works so well. That song is absolutely rammed full of great drum fills and shifts of the snare accent as well. It's got, um, I'm pretty sure that saxophone's distorted as well. Oh, I mean, honestly, man, that sax is probably going through about eight pedals at that point. That tune has an unbelievable ending. It, that kind of three minutes 30 when the bass harmonics come in. Yeah. 20 seconds gets joined by a snare and then at 3.50 it just all clicks. The end of that song is anthemic. And again, seeing them live, it's such a favourite, that tune. That when that ending of that 350 kicks in, it's just pure hairs on the back of your neck time. It's, it, I think as well, because that was the first track in this, everybody knew this album's a bit special. Right mm. off the first tune, the folk that were already Zoo fans, the people that were just hearing it for the first, what the fuck is this? Mm-hmm. That ending is outstanding. Uh, and then it goes straight into Chthonian. Which C T H O N I E N, which apparently relates to or inhabits the underworld. There you go. Yeah, um, Cthulhu. Cthulhu. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. There you go. It's fucking some Satanist you are. Yeah. I know. I know. Uh, it's got a total industrial feel. This song. Uh, yeah, it's also got King Buzzle on it. Mm. Adding to the chug. It's a really iconic riff. 
because sometimes when the sets are this jazzy they can disintegrate and often if you're finishing a track that's like a jazz rock track it will disintegrate to a point where oh, is that the end of that song is that then and they do that deliberately they let things fritter away and then suddenly this comes in mm-hmm. and that's like everyone's like back in the game yes something to latch on to like a ha- like a, a foothold or a handhold as you're climbing that wall it's absolutely fucking yeah fun. on the stuff like this this is i don't know it's like yeah you're talking about a good dj will you know like fade things out exactly and then, like eventually come back in you hear that bass drum or whatever and that's yep. what they do and it is like they're working the crowd yeah um and that's what this record sounds like you know they're just a fucking shit hot and it's a market a band Reader. that's played so many live shows that they can they can take their own music and as you say DJ they can like yeah. drag frequencies in and out of it. It's, it's really masterful to watch them do it. Sometimes they'll tease the crowd to the point of almost antagonism, mm-hmm. and then they'll bring it back in, and everybody gets back on side. It's it's really special. Um, there's a great contrapuntal rhythm played on like a trashy cymbal and chthonian uh, that th- that runs underneath. It's just this huge lumbering tune with surprisingly fun. Sax work over the topic though. The sax work on that song is pretty uh, mm-hmm. expressive. Uh, yeah, it's, a lot of the time sax stands in for vocals mm-hmm. in a lot of these songs, you know, and yep. it's got that, it's got that, it's done that register, it's got that feel, which, uh, yeah, I because think, the bass is so overdriven, it sort of takes the guitar and the bass place. Yeah, and then, yeah, your sax is doing a lot of work. Um, we buzzo as well, they make a nice use of that ambient bridge. Yeah, it's almost yeah, like, like electronics. Pad. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like that. It's, it's a really, really good bridge. It's a little breather. Uh, track three, Carbon, the Angry Geese song. <laughs> Fucking love that song. Such a cool thing with it. It's, they do this thing as well where the, either the sax or the bass swap the lead of mm-hmm. the song. Yeah. So here you've got a song where now the sax is dictating the riff, yeah. whereas in the previous one the bass was the riff and the sax was playing over it. It gives them so many more options with their songwriting that they don't just have this formula that some of the other sort mm-hmm. of bands in their field do, which is like, oh, the bass structures a song and the sax always just fucks about over the top of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. They vary it. They can yeah. have the, the, the sax playing the bass almost and the bass pitch shifted up doing all kinds of mad stuff over it. Yeah, sounds like a chorus of saxophones almost as well. I think there's definitely more than one track on that there. Yeah, it'll probably be a, a effects pedals. It'll either be like some kind of double or pedal or maybe loops or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, they, but it's really, really cool. Yeah. There's a bassy beat down in that one as well. Where the, and then the main kind of, this tone fades up very quietly. It's, tre- it's almost like a tremolo picking guitar, I think. Uh, track four, Beat a Viscera. Uh, it's probably the world's foremost jazz beatdown at the end. It's got a total Dillinger vibe, like she's been Dillinger step away from being mental. 
and they do more melodic bits and things yeah. like Ironworks. This is what it sounds like. And then True Nexus style as well, you know, the Dillinger to Mike Patton, Mike Patton to Zoo Connection. Mm. It's not a million miles away. Yeah. These people are kind of moving in the same circles and playing in a lot of the same festivals as mm. well. Uh, I love Beat of Viscera. Um, it's got some amazing, some I've, said, I've written here, lovely bass tones on this song. There's some like really interesting tones throughout this tune, which make it a totally, like the clean tone is really spanky and nice and t- properly jazzy. Yeah. Spanky. Yeah, spanky. There you go, eh? And it gets like sometimes it gets really dirty and heavy, and it's just like you know, it's nice. See, given that this band worked well, Beanie prior, and as Dave said, worked with Bob Weston. Um, and I know you were saying about uh, Quartar Todo, and it is really punchy as an album. The production in this record, uh, to me, is unsurpassed, man. I think it's so brittle and chunky and clear. I just I think it's a fucking fantastically well produced album. The only thing that let me down was the drum production. I don't think it was up to much, really? to be honest. Oh, yeah, no, especially I... the flat kick yeah. drum. The flat sounding kick drum just pissed me off so much, man. Yeah, I think there could be a little bit more life in the drums. I agree. There's some. There's something like I do like the production in this record, but it doesn't sparkle for me somehow. There's something missing. It um, sounds. It sounds a bit dead almost. Like it needs a bit more life in the drums. I think my yeah. only concern. We've been too critical of that. Is that you're talking about a guy that's plowing a furrow of drumming that's really quite difficult to capture because you don't want to produce them in the manner of a rock drummer where you have like this set, con- you know, this set compression on the kick drum. So yeah. every, every kick beat is the same volume because that would be, you know, that'd be kind of mm-hmm. your standard approach for some kind of big metal record where no matter how hard or light he hits it, it's still your, your outboard's bringing it up to one level can't do that with a jazz drummer because the jazz drummer's strokes are different volumes mm-hmm. but then the other side of it you also don't want your album to be beefy as fuck with the jazz and the bass with the sax and the bass and then and then a lot of drum getting lost and then the drums yeah. get lost I, I definitely know that it's a, a very difficult balance to get and he, there's even bits in this where he's rim clicking like but, super gentle and yeah. tr- trying to capture and I, that I, I think that they capture it as well as they can maybe but the problem with it is that it just makes me want to see them live more yeah, that's but I, I doubt that's something that upsets them too much. No, because it's still you know it's still great. Yeah, I, recording. But. I do feel listening to their earlier albums that in order to not override the drums, the producers maybe went a little bit too easy on the the the, the power of the bass in particular. I think the earlier albums would sound better if they were recorded a bit beefier because it's a beefier band than those albums suggest. But that's maybe slightly dictated by not wanting to drown out the incredible dynamics of, yeah. of Bataglia's drumming uh, so I'm just you know um, speculating on that but that that does seem to suggest that to me anyway um, Ernie's uh, the fifth track faster really riffier Fucking great bass tones in this one as well. It's a proper no, punk rock song, this one. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I wrote punk as well. Yeah, it's, mm. it's really punky. It's really frantic. Um, yeah, you definitely get the lightning bolt vibe here, I think, as well. Yeah, and I think it's good because they had a couple of lumbering tunes in the record. Mm-hmm. It's nice to inject a wee bit of speed back into it. It's, it's simpler ideas. It's not as, you know, it's not as high concept as a couple of the ones before it. Um, but Best of Easter and this, like, they, they, they bleed in each other really, really well. 
Like I didn't even notice the song had changed until like a minute into Henry's and I was like, oh fuck. Yeah. 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 It's really cool. Um the sixth track, Soul Olympics, Mark, we spoke about this when I when you first started listening back to this, because this is the one with Mike Patton doing vocals on it. First and foremost, I love the bass riff in it. It's mm-hmm. very Jesus Lizard motif, even though it's played slightly differently. My thing with this song is, I don't think this song needs Mike Patton. I agree, or I just think it's too Mike Patton. Yeah. I think, like, you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's a Mr. Bungle or Fan Thomas. It's or even, d- even just, Tomahawk. Yeah. yeah, exactly. He's just got those notes that he always uses yeah. that are great and nobody else can fucking get to, but it's his go-to sort of range yeah. that suddenly takes you out of this record and you're thinking about Mike Patton yeah. which is kind of weird because you know a record like this you kind of get a little bit lost in and it's got its own world that you're thinking about and then oh suddenly an outside influence that kind of distracts you a little bit. Yeah so he's on Orc as well the mm. closing track and I think his contribution to the Orc is excellent it really really works yeah. It complements the song. And I do think there are moments of the vocals during uh, Soul Olympics that could have worked, but he never returns to one motif. Mm-hmm. He, he just seems to try like half a dozen different ideas that some are better than others, but because there's no distinct reprise to any of them, they all seem a bit tokenistic. And I, I don't know, I love the tune underlying, and I find when I'm listening to it, I'm trying to listen to the band yeah. and less to Mike. And I do like Mike, but Mike Patton, by the way, I'm not anti it by any means, but I just am not sure that he had to be on this song, or at least not to that extent. I love the way that the that his vocal being in the song it makes the sax sound more like a guitar, so it's like a different string to their bow. That's fair. Yeah. You know, so that is like true. and with his vocal right, on there. Pipe yeah, so to their to their set horn section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so I like that. I mean Mike Patton's gonna be Mike Patton, you can put Mike Patton on any song and it'll sound like a Mike Patton song no matter who it is. It's not always good though. I know, but yeah. wo- I think it works here. I, I, I think it does. Jury's out. Yeah, I think it just <laughs> takes you out of the album a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the seventh track, Axion, is a great song. Really fast start, but drops into this kind of like abyss of like, doom jazz. It really actually, see if you listen to it and imagine you've just put a record on at the wrong speed. Mm-hmm. That's what this track sounds like by about a minute. There's in. a band called the Kilimanjaro Doom Jazz Ensemble, uh, and it's like slow and heavy, and you know, it's kind of like an ambient version of this. Yeah, yeah, I, it, and it's one of those examples of them showing that their more experimental moments from their other as parts of their career are still there. They can still be sinister and weird and obtuse and playing a bill with sun, for example, in the context of this much more accessible record. There, there's some beats in this as well. The drummer in this is almost dragging behind the song. Mm-hmm. There's something very deliberate. I mean, he's too good a drummer not to have done that on purpose. And it's such a disconcerting thing because you're almost mentally wanting the drums to just move forward. It's like a weird effect it has in your brain where you're like, mm-hmm. come on, just land a little bit sooner. The sax um, break around three minutes twenty is amazing. I've written so. that down as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that absolutely uh, the center stage sax thing. Mm-hmm. 
drum. You've got a mental drum fill right after it to, <laughs> to get the next part. And you're like, oh, it's just good. It's it's another wee kind of, uh, what would you call it? A wee refresher moment as well. Just empty things out a bit, let your brain recover because there's a lot going on. Um, Mimosa Hostilis, just really big noise rock influence in this song. Some of the names like Suit the Leg, Johnny, Melvins and stuff. Those kind of influences come more to the fore. This is something that wasn't as present in their earlier career and kind of appears more in their later career. And again, is why I kind of got more into their late career. There's it's some really like a grinding feel almost. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. kind of crushing. Yeah, I think. Well, th- those kind of tones, I think, are really akin to noise rock, and it's something that was missing for the band earlier on. Uh, there's a really weird effects thing at two minutes ten. Cool as shit. It's a bit, I think there's a bit where the sax almost sounds like a synth pad as well. I, think, I don't know what he's putting it through, but it's, it makes like a really kind of deep electronic style sound. This is this is when the, the, the gearheads are down at the front leaning over, yeah. like trying to see the name on the pedal. Um, track 9, Obsidian, a really well-known song for people that go and see Zoo live. Really slow, brooding, sinister thing. The saxophone in this one just throbs, like it actually throbs its way through the song. Uh, and then those choruses are just almost orchestral. Yeah, totally. I've written that down, like almost symphonic. Yeah. So grandiose that tune, real big fucking sense of drama to it, and has that really proggy ending. Mm. I like that about that. I think it's a really well structured record in that sense. That is such a standout song that I could imagine a lesser band banging it on early and shooting their bolt a bit too soon. It's great that they counterbalanced some of the very very strong opening tracks on the record with with a song with such a powerful chorusy bit. And I also like the fact that track ten, Orc, the one we said Mike Patton is on has that mantra-esque, kind of doomy, long, avant-garde noise quality to it. They didn't feel... Like, they finished in a way that sounds like Zoo. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. They didn't betray their earlier fans. They didn't get too overly commercial didn't cut all their weird experimental instincts from this they left them in there in a big way but just in the right quantity 10 tracks good lengths like digestible tracks with good moments of pacing it's a a brilliantly considered album i wonder how many times they reordered it you know in in the the pre-production but i think they got it just right yeah, I think yeah, Orca's good and having Mike Patton just doing the that sort of really scant vocal. Yeah, it's almost like throat singing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really, really great. 
yeah. and effects on it are just, are just really unsettling as well. It just kind of makes you cringe in a good way. Like, it's, it's a song as well where you do get a sense, oh, maybe this is going to explode, but they just don't. Mm-hmm. They just don't. They don't need to. They've done enough of that and they just kind of make you, and they just kind of ease you out again. I love this album. I love this album. I think it's a fantastic um, Goldilocks point in the career of a band. And as Dave said, probably a Goldilocks point in between a number of genres that can otherwise be a wee bit uh, hard going at times. Um, and it's some. It's it's a great way to get people that are alien to a lot of those genres uh, into them, or at least to to give them a foot in the door that allows them to say, oh, I like wee bits of that and that and that now, because I was that person. I didn't know where the fuck to start with jazz rock. I found it really impenetrable. And now I can at least navigate it enough to know what I like and what I don't like. And I really fucking like Zoo. Mm. And I really, really fucking like this album. It's a good record. It's probably the only Zoo record I've put in that I've heard, so... Well, that's that's it, and it's yeah, not unsung in their catalogue, obviously. But in the wider but scheme, in of the things, wider scheme of things, they're yeah. not a big band. Uh, they nail, like I've mentioned, Lightning Bolt, but Lightning Bolt are a band that you know could go and play a five hundred capacity room in any you know major city, and that's because they're like the go to hipsters noise band because yeah. you know everybody has chosen them as the one that oh they're gonna be fucking sweaty and amazing so I should go and see them just ask Brooklyn Lager about that yeah fucking hipster (laughs) (laughs) but um, in reality there's a lot of bands like that that are fucking amazing that couldn't you know fill 500 capacity room like that Mm -hmm. and Zoo are one of them and Zoo are you know taking in a lot of influences and yeah really nailing it on this record I think yeah so without a doubt I would love to see this record go in I think it's a, a bit of a loss if we don't have it. And I love that we're able to sort of feel our way towards another area of, you know, alternative music that we've not necessarily covered thus far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it should go in. And I, and I also agree with that. I think the fact that we've managed to cover another area is, is good because there's, there's still so much more to go, but we're mm-hmm. inching forward into doing we're different things all the time. So that's yeah. good. Mm. Nice one. All right. Uh, we should probably do our next, is then, eh? Aye. we choose this week's person uh this was picked out the nexus tub as per mm-hmm. uh mark you were looking forward to doing this guy i didn't even know who the fuck he was it was you that told me yeah, he does a lot of cool documentaries so on 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 how he used to be a doctor thought it was a doctor i guess so yeah. uh one time guest and regular listener anna goldthorpe uh decided to enter dr michael mosley bbc celebrity dr michael mosley into the nexus sweepstake and he was drawn this week. So we have to somehow join Italian prog jazz metal band Zoo to Dr. Michael Mosley. So who's going first? Well, sure, it's your record, so you go first. But you guys aren't going to talk, mine. Uh, so. <laughs> all right, I'll go first then. Fuck it. Uh, 
breaking the rules. So, Zoo, we talked about it. Um, it was on... Anna, you better fucking appreciate this, by the way. This was not easy. <laughs> this wasn't easy, man. Oh, my God. Um, fuck, I can't even remember what record it was on. Um, but uh, Fred Longberg Holm, uh-huh. yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. cellist, appeared on one record <laughs> uh, i think it's the one about the cow anyway i mean i've just the way of animal po- the way of the animal powers anyway sorry david um so he is a very interesting american uh he has also done work with wilco mm-hmm. uh, amongst others um wilco obviously a classic american alternative rock band in 2013 they played a set of fully covers um, a lot of people were very excited and there was a little um, American indie 90s rock um, ancestral bit when they covered uh, Pavement, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, fun. Um, I believe it was Cut Your Hair. Pavement, obviously, fronted by the... Stephen Malkmus. The man Stephen Malkmus, who's playing in Glasgow soon, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen Malkmus is alumni of the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, University of Virginia alumni also include fucking loads of cunts like Edgar Allan Poe. This is the bit where you Robert were like, this F. is a bit Kennedy, of a job, isn't it? And of course, uh, Dr. Barry Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> He's well known. Uh, an Australian physician, Nobel Prize laureate in physiology and I'm medicine. Word, I'm hearing the word doctor. And what did he... he got the Nobel Prize. He was elected Fellow of the Royal Society in 1999 um, because with Robin Warren discovered spiral bacteria in the stomachs of almost all patients with active chronic gastritis or duodenal oh. and gastric ulcers and proposed that the bacteria were an important factor in the aetology of these diseases. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you brought this, Anna. You brought this on us. I know, this is your fault. And Dr. Michael Mosley was nominated for an Emmy and a BAFTA on his Orion documentary, his Horizon documentary reporting the link between Helicobacter pylori and gastric ulcers discovered by Australian scientists Robin Warren and Barry Marshall. Well, that is certainly a nexus. Excellent. (laughs) Well done. The university (laughs) link was a stretch, but he could have lied and said that he sat in the same chair as JFK or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fuck it. I don't know. Yeah, Illumini is a stretch, but, you know, shared university is a a small link. You say Illuminati instead of alumni. Alumni. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Michael Mosley is part of the Illuminati. Why not? Who knows? (laughs) All right, Mark. I guess I'm going to go then. Um... So Zoo have a record called The Left Hand Path. Mm-hmm. The record is, has vocals by a gentleman called, as we've discussed, Eugene S. Robinson, who's in Oxbow. He um, starred in a Gus Van Zandt-directed commercial for Miller Genuine Draft. Did not know that. Yeah. Gus Van Zandt directed a lot of films, including a film called Finding Forrester, which stars Mr. Sean Connery. Don't remember that. Yeah. Finding Forrester. It's, uh, it's about an yeah. author. A reclusive author. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the one you mean. Yeah. I didn't Mr. know it was Gus Van Sant, though. Yeah. Mr. John Con- Mr. Sean Connery was also James Bond. Yep. Uh, and that is true. James Bond was also played by Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. And Pierce Brosnan was in Michael Mosley produced nominate, uh, Emmy nominated documentary The Face about the science behind facial beauty, expression, and fame. That's oh. actually quite good. We've all gone in very different directions. Pretty good link there, yeah. All right, cool. So Massimo Pupilo. Is also the name of Massimo Papillo's dad, whose full name is uh, actually 
Domenico Massimo Papillo, but he changes his name depending on what he's doing because he's an Italian movie director, famous for a whole bunch of like legendary Italian B-movies, including Terror Creatures from the Grave and Bloody Pit of Horror, which can actually be found playing in a loop in my work most Saturday nights. Uh-huh. Um, now... Domenico Massimo Papillo, the dad, was mistakenly declared dead in 1982 by the Italian media or some some parts of the Italian media after he was apparently confused with his directorial colleague and peer, Ralph Zucker, uh, who also did a lot of B-movies and stuff. Uh, Ralph Zucker produced the 1970 film Formula One, Nell'Inferno del Grand Prix, my Italian is not up to scratch, mm. uh, but I'm guessing that's about Formula One and something to do with the Grand Prix, uh, which is about a racing driver who will apparently do anything, and I've underlined the word anything, to win. The tagline for that movie is Daredevils straight out of hell who ride flat out on the rim of death. <laughs> Accentuated. Uh, now, believe it or not, in that film, there is a cameo by Mr. Graham Hill, father of Damon Hill. I know where wow. you're going. Oh, good. So Damon Hill and, in fact, also Graham Hill were both once leaked as being the secret identity of the Stig. Uh-huh. The Stig, yeah. On uh, the show Top Gear by yep. Jeremy Clarkson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, himself, he he leaked it. Um, I, obviously, Jeremy Clarkson hosted Top Gear, but he also hosted a BBC Two show called Inventions That Changed the World. I see where Which you're going was here. produced by Dr. Michael Mosley. I yeah. see. I, I knew somebody case. would go the Jeremy Clarkson route. I deliberately didn't go down that route. So, yeah. Just to leave it open for me. Thanks, yeah. David. Very kind. Yeah. So Nexus complete. That was quite good. All right. Well yeah. done, guys. Uh, Anna, you better appreciate how much work that Nexus was. I hey, mean, and all three of those were actually totally pretty short. Yeah. And you know, not and informative. We got it. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it, I think we should be uh, commended for the fact that it didn't take us like seventy fucking <laughs> jumps to get there. <laughs> so uh, we're going to announce what we're going to do next week, and then I believe one of these chaps is going to draw the next Nexus name out the tub live. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to kick that tub oh. on the floor. <laughs> on the floor towards so, Mark. Mark. What album are we doing next week? Uh, this is um, your your lads. I got it. I got it. Oh, he's, he's got the tub. I've added all the names, by the way. P- please keep suggesting names yes, please on do. the Facebook and Twitter feeds because we're just adding them to these little coupons and sticking them in the tub. Uh, Mark, you need to tell us what album we're doing first. Are we going to do that first? Yeah. Okay, uh, next week we're going to do Apocalypse 91, The Empire Strikes Black by Public Enemy. Public Enemy. Excellent. Down with that. And we're going to have to link that to... <laughs> we have to link your public Drum enemy roll. to... Da, 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 da. Uh, here we go. Wait a minute. Dr. Michael Mosley. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Christopher. <laughs> put it back in for... <laughs> I'm pretty sure I put that in the bin. <laughs> no, it's, it's right there. <laughs> it's truly right there. <laughs> There's actually quite a lot in there as well, so that's pretty weird. That is really strange. Um, okay, we've got um, Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky. Mr. Wayne Gretzky. Okay. Nominated by whom? Mr. Ollie Corp- Colbson. Ollie Colbson. See, Ollie, see when you start you. getting fans in other countries with wacky names that you don't know how to say. Sorry, Ollie. Ollie? Orly? Ollie, Ollie. Well, Mr. Gretzky is our choice next week. So how are we, how are we going to get a public enemy to Wayne Gretzky? I think that, that could be quite easy, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I think we can maybe go 
pretty weird with that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there's going to be some detours we can take, I think. All right. Thanks, Oli. And right, uh, don't put that back in the box, you idiot. Yes. <laughs> I just saw you put it back in the box. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got it. I've go. figured out where we've gone wrong here. Gone. All right. That was good fun. And we will reconvene. Great. Thanks. Bye. Bye.